Hello, I'm Sean Harris, and welcome to the third episode in our series about Nye Bevan's fight to create the NHS. It's based on the research that was carried out for the audio drama Getting Better, an Audible original. You'll hear some excerpts from this as we go along. After receiving the backing of the Cabinet and the strong support of Attlee, Nye could take his National Health Service bill through the House of Commons. It sailed through by 359 votes to 179. You had them, Nye! You had them all! Ah, A satisfying performance. A positively prime ministerial. This, now this, is where you make your mark. 359 votes to 179 because of you. Because of your words, I could kiss you. Far be it from me to disappoint a member of my public. Oh, careful, careful, Minister. This is still the House of Commons smoking room. You'll give the Speaker a heart attack. It's an MP's duty to keep in touch with the people. Stay for a smoke, at least. I can't. We're getting more letters than even the secretaries can cope with. They're coming to the House now, too, saying just what it's like on the front line. It's gold, nigh, pure gold for your speeches. I don't deserve you. Finally, something upon which we agree, Mr Bevan. Thank you, Winston. Indeed. I'd vote for you over this one any day of the week, and twice on a Sunday. That's very kind, Winston. I wouldn't vote for you at all. The Tory opposition were defeated relatively easily. There wasn't much they could do against such a large government majority. Regardless, they continued to make the dissent known, voting against Nye's National Health Service Bill at every stage. And this despite having accepted Beveridge's report and, indeed, produced their own white paper for a version of the NHS. And over the next 75 years, a strong argument can be made that they've never managed to quite convince the electorate that they can be trusted with the NHS. This was certainly David Cameron's claim in the lead-up to the 2010 election. So why did the Tories both campaign and vote against Nye's bill in Parliament when their stated aim was to achieve the beverage plan? The Tory opposition to the bill was entrusted to Mr Henry Willink and Mr Richard Law. The former tried eagerly and somewhat petulantly to defend his original plan. But at least he was well versed in the detail of the health service. Mr Law was more aggressive in his approach. He said that Nye had brought to the House proposals which are in fact feared and distrusted by the great majority of those who will be called upon to make them effective. Former leader of the Labour Party, Michael Foote, relates an occasion when Nye interrupted one of Law's opposition speeches with Have the Royal Colleges placed anything on record against the bill? Law stumbled on. He responded that the Royal College of Obstetricians were on record with If my memory serves me right, the Minister's proposals are likely to lead to a great increase in maternal mortality. After the uproar that this incorrect statement caused, it was impossible to recover the opposition's position on the day the bill was passed with a massive majority. Overall, Foote summarises the Tory position as a five-fold attack. Nye, they said, was preparing the way for a full-time salaried service for doctors. He was threatening the patient-doctor relationship, he was undermining local government, he was wantonly wrecking the voluntary hospital system... Above all, and this was true, he had abandoned many of the precepts of the Willink White Paper. In Willink's words, 
What is this baleful influence of the Minister of Health, which has overthrown the judgment of those so far more experienced? The Tories were defending the arguments of the British Medical Association and doctors. Yet the doctors didn't like the Tories' plans either, and the original coalition white paper hadn't presented the means of how to pay for their own plan. So on an issue of such importance, where was Churchill? After losing the election, Churchill remained leader of the opposition, but was seldom in Parliament for these debates, delegating them to Willingham laws. Yet, in the same time period, he did make major international interventions, such as the famous Iron Curtain speech. When Beveridge acceded his brief and produced his initial report, Churchill's main concern was that it would distract concentration away from winning the war. Over time, it is said he reluctantly conceded the need for a post-war plan. This time, the promise Lloyd George had made after the First World War of a land fit for heroes to live in had to be fulfilled. As a result, whilst Churchill deferred most of the beverage plans until after the war was over and a general election had taken place, he did approve of the papers to be prepared for education and the new health service. As discussed... There are key reasons why Churchill might not have been a fan of Nye and Jenny. Jenny's maiden speech targeted Churchill when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, but at the time he congratulated her on the speech and openly admired her courage. Nye's often lone opposition to Churchill during the war did lead Churchill to refer to him as a squalid nuisance. As Michael Foote points out, During the health debates, Churchill also claimed that it was Bevan's contumacy that led to such bitterness and suspicion. If Nye had just implemented the health changes that Churchill's government had put together in the days of the coalition, then all would have been fine. However, Churchill's own plans had been equally feared by the doctors, and the last election put paid to further changes. As a result, the opposition did little more than what their name suggests, blindly oppose. As Foote records, Churchill had many backers in Fleet Street who needed no incitement to attack Bavern. Churchill and Nye were both giants of Parliament and engrossing speakers, but they were also complex characters and, as evidence suggests, their own worst enemies. As we've heard, Churchill made quite rude remarks about Attlee. However, he respected his role during the war and the fact he'd fought in one of Churchill's biggest disasters at the Dardanelles. As a result, he wouldn't let anyone else say a bad word about him. Equally, Churchill even said of Nye, He is one of the few people I would sit still and listen to. And when Nye was asked about Winston, he said this, It was hard, even for his political opponents in the House of Commons at any rate, to dislike him. Even though Nye and Churchill had been a David and Goliath affair, Jenny said, Nye was certain that history was on his side. And this was what gave him the superb confidence to face the biggest battle of all, the doctors. Once the bill was through Parliament, all Churchill, Willink and the Tories could do was stir up Fleet Street. Nye refused to discuss his developing proposals until the first reading of the bill. He believed that deals should be made in Parliament and not secret back rooms. And this is where the trouble with his greatest opponents began. The British Medical Association, or BMA, 
expected to be involved in negotiations, not consultations, with Nye. It wanted a hand in shaping his parliamentary bill. Nye refused to let this happen. Since the role was created in 1919, ministers of health had not typically lasted more than a few months. And the health ministry was a known graveyard for reformers. How, after all, do you take on the doctors when the profession enjoys such public esteem? Much of the implicit faith that people invested in the medical profession carried over into the political arena. A doctor who knew how to deal with whooping cough must, it was reasoned, also know how to deal with the provision of health services. Most GPs hated change, especially when it involved state interference. This was despite the fact that, in Michael Foote's words, the majority of doctors fighting against the NHS had to work in primitive facilities for shockingly low salaries. Nonetheless, they had resisted Lloyd George's National Insurance Act in 1911, and they fought against Nye's plans for a national health service with genuine ferocity. The columns of the British Medical Journal of the time seethe with venom at the Welsh upstart, the coal miner who presumed to know more about the organisation of medicine than they did. Nye was compared to Adolf Hitler, Joseph Goebbels and Benito Mussolini and, once the Cold War had started, to Joe Stalin. The words Belsen and Dachau were bandied about to describe what life would be like for doctors in the NHS. Anyone who thinks that the standard of public debate has degenerated since the advent of social media should check out BMJ correspondence columns between 1945 and 1948. Here's Rod Gilbert, who plays Nybevan in Getting Better. Doctors now, I expect, look back at Nybevan as a hero of the NHS. He's a part of medical history and a proud one. But in the 40s, he was the devil. Although I do suspect, however frustrated it might have made him, some part of him probably enjoyed that. But Nye was not intimidated by that. He believed he did know how to organise healthcare better than the doctors did. Hence the battle. The organisation that looked after GPs and took the fight to Nye Bevan was the British Medical Association, a trade union in all but name, with as much internal strength and sense of purpose in 1948 as the National Union of Mine Workers. The main difference between the two was that the NUM actually wanted the nationalisation of their industry and had done so since 1919 while the doctors resisted all forms of state interference. The BMA was also, ironically, more militant. Its opposition to the NHS was based on the idea that it spelt slavery or serfdom for any doctor foolish enough to sign up for it. So this was the next battle that Nye had to win. With cabinet backing, Nye declared that the National Health Service would begin operating on the 5th of July 1948, with all services starting on the same day. But how could a health service run without doctors? In the drama, certain doctors represent the activist base of the BMA who feared losing their independence and status. The essential conflict at the heart of the NHS creation story is one between Nye Bevan and men, and a few women, like Lord Horder and Charles Hill. Do you know Nye Bevan's calling us prima donnas? Well, we are, aren't we? Oh, speak for yourself, Hill. But the man's a menace. Absolute menace. I'll admit, Lord Horder, he wouldn't be our first choice for Minister of Health. Then don't take it lying down. 
I didn't rise to become physician to the King of England to see some coal miner's son in control of what I do and don't prescribe. I can influence the royal colleges, but you must do your part, Hill. The British Medical Association must take a stand. We have, like you, our concerns. Concerns? The man's as red as a sunset. Have us all in bed with Mother Russia as soon as our backs are turned. I mean, how else does he live the way he does? All his whining and dining. They may all talk the talk, the poor, the poor, and all that, but they're nothing but pocket-lining parasites, without even the courage to admit it. I don't think we need to rely on fear-mongering. The country simply can't afford Bevan's plan, not after a war. Ackley knows that. It'll be quashed with a few gentle words in right ears. We're in preparatory talks with Sir Wilson Jameson. Uh, Jameson's a good sort, won't deny. Got pedigree. You can turn him round. And it would make clear to him that the BMA have no intention of supporting the National Health Service Bill as it stands. Forcing doctors to work 20 hours a day in slum conditions is a naked abuse of power. Well, it comes from miners. Want us all to behave like miners. Might as well have appointed a chimney sweep. The key doctors in the battle for the NHS were Dr Charles Hill, the BMA's charismatic secretary, and Dr Guy Dane, its chairman. Hill was a public relations master, having become fondly known as the radio doctor on the BBC during the war, broadcasting his bedside manner into the homes of millions of British listeners, 14 million by one reckoning. He told them what to do about chillblains, sore throats, mumps and hay fever. People trusted him. Here's the real Dr Charles Hill, the radio doctor speaking to the nation during the war. But how are you today? How's your tongue? Is it smooth and red or knobby and beige with an overcoat of a muddy hue? And how's the stomach? Is it firm and steady or somewhat warm or a little wobbly and a trifle windy? Or was your Christmas day so spartan that today you're fighting fit with no twinge of remorse? With the public's trust at his back, Hill became a formidable opponent for Nye. He claims in his memoirs, Both Sides of the Hill, that though he was shocked by the appointment of Nye as Minister of Health, he knew just enough of him not to share the view of his colleagues that he was a viper. That's important. For even if Charles Hill did not underestimate Nye, as his colleagues did, he certainly seemed to underestimate the level of popular admiration for him. Here's actor Colin Baker, who remembers listening to the radio doctor growing up. Charles Hill felt he was protecting doctors and patients by opposing what he saw to be um, a potential disaster for the national health of the country. And he was pledged to protect the interests of doctors and was absolutely tenacious in doing so. So it was a fascinating character to play because you had to remove the knowledge we have now and put yourself in his place. His voice was as familiar to me as Uncle Mac on the radio in the 40s and 50s and all those other iconic children's programmes that I listened to. And he talked sense. It was pompous and sonorous and... A tad patronising, but he was nonetheless the voice of medicine in our homes. Charles Hill also had political ambitions. 
and it was this, perhaps, that helped him to compromise in 1948 and not go through with a boycott of the new service. He had failed to get elected as a Member of Parliament in the 1945 general election, but did eventually become the Conservative MP for Luton in 1950. He was even briefly a minister in the Harold Macmillan government, but was one of the victims of Macmillan's Night of the Long Knives in 1962. Here's what Nye had to say just before that in 1959. In fact, the leader of the British Medical Association opposition was Charles Hill. Well, you remember, don't you? Yes, of course, Charles Hill. Uh, he's a member of the government now. He's in charge of the public relations. <laughs> Most curious appointment. His most curious appointment is a Roman emperor uh, put the imperial crown on his horse. (laughs) Following that, he returned to broadcasting, appointed the following year as chairman of the Independent Television Authority. Four years later, he switched sides to become chairman of the BBC Governors, which caused a flurry of resignations. It was like inviting Rommel to command the 8th Army on the eve of Alamein, said one. Hill was one of the first government-appointed BBC chairs and was widely reviewed as the worst there had ever been, though I expect Gary Lineker might now disagree. And quite simply, Mr Bevan has not taken them seriously. Is that true, Mr Bevan? It's the obverse of the truth. My friends in the Labour Party are beginning to say I've made too many concessions to the BMA. Stand amazed that I get nothing in return. Oh, that's incorrect. Don't lose your cool night. Don't lose it now. I ask you to amend your act to meet our reasonable fears. Which I have done. But the BMA wants every protection that pedantry can devise. Their position seems to be that they will refuse to cooperate with the National Health Service Act unless it is drafted by their own lawyers. Oh, not true. Oh, but now you mention it, it would be a better act. A telling insight, I think, into the mind of the BMA. I think many of our listeners will be wondering, because of the current stalemate, whether this National Health Service will even start on July 5th. Dr Hill? No. No, it won't. There won't be enough doctors or nurses reporting for duty because of Mr Bevan's intransigence. The sheer cheek of the man! No wish to be a part of Mr. Bevan's health service. It was the 6th of January 1947, just 18 months before the NHS was due to start. Nye had finally written to the presidents of the Royal Colleges to invite them to discussions. The BMA made their acceptance conditional. They would only attend if the negotiations could genuinely lead to further legislation and that the doctors could hold a referendum or plebiscite of the profession at the end of the discussions. This would prove to be a condition with far-reaching consequences. Despite the inherent risks of referendums, Nye agreed to these terms, and the first negotiating committee took place on the 28th of February 1947. As Michael Foote wrote, the doctors went into the negotiations wanting four things. Firstly, the GPs wanted to maintain ownership of their GP practices. Secondly, they wanted to maintain the freedom to choose where to practice without direction. 
Thirdly, they wanted confidence that they would never become full-time salaried staff like civil servants, who they saw as slaves to the state. Finally, they wanted the right of appeal to the regular courts if a doctor was dismissed at a tribunal. At the first meeting, Nye was aggressive, offering little compromise. Nonetheless, the meeting proactively set up subcommittees to review all the points. Altogether, the negotiating committee met 31 times. The main debate with Charles Hill was on the doctor's first point, the ownership of GP practices. Nye had put aside £66 million to compensate GPs for when the National Health Service would nationalise their practices. He actively sought the BMA's help in distributing this cash. Whilst Charles Hill was by no means appeased on this issue, Nye had his allies among the younger doctors. Represented in Getting Better by the character of Reggie Hughes, played by Rob James Collier. Nye knew it too. Although doctors younger than Reggie didn't have a vote in the BMA plebiscites, which is what they called referendums back in those days, they were the ones on whom the new service would ultimately depend. There was a changing of the guard underway, which brought its own tensions, as they didn't necessarily feel that the older doctors spoke for them or understood how medicine had changed post-war. The student-doctor body was very much for the NHS, as were the younger doctors who had been in the armed forces during the war. In a meeting with student doctors on the 2nd of November 1946, Nye reinforced that it was they, not the old leaders of the BMA, who were at the forefront of his mind. You and I will have to live together, he said. What he hoped to do was free them from the tender mercies of the moneylender. They had the added incentive of not wanting to pay what was called goodwill, a large cash sum that they needed to stump up to buy a retiring doctor's patience list. To many young doctors like Reggie, this system seemed archaic, a medical equivalent of buying a commission in the army something that had been abolished almost a hundred years before. You can see what many senior doctors thought about the younger generation by looking at the BMJ again. Here's Dr Sybil Tremelin from a London practice quoted in the journal on the 10th of January 1948, read by Rob James Collier. This un-English craving for security has grown on us. Safety first is a very poor motto and would never have won the war. Too many younger members of our profession are terribly afraid of insecurity and seem to prefer safety to freedom itself. The tragic result of our patriotic obedience during the war has made us all in danger of losing our sense of individual initiative and responsibility. And again, it is our younger members who are far too ready to toe the line and become yes-men. When it came to the freedom to work anywhere, Nye believed that if remuneration for the doctors was coming from public funds then doctors must work where they were needed most. As discussed earlier, wealthier areas of the country, under the current system, had a far greater number of doctors than poorer areas. So the negotiating committee had to define, often controversially, over-doctored and under-doctored areas. Nye was also consistent in maintaining there was no need for a full-time salary. There would still be the opportunity for private income. There would be four types of hospital accommodation. The first would be free to everyone. The second would offer additional amenities for purchase. Then there would be wards where surgeons, radiologists and other consultants could charge up to a maximum amount. 
Finally, there would be beds where there would be unlimited charging. Direct pay would consist of a fixed element of £300, based on treating 95% of the population. There would be a further capitation fee and the percentage would be reviewed after two years. However, despite all of the meetings and the discussions, there appeared to be nothing Nye could say to get the BMA on side. Their statements were at best discouraging. Despite all the concessions, they said, on no single major issue has the minister responded to the seasoned arguments of the profession. As the doctors briefed against Nye, the Tories whipped up Fleet Street, which meant the press moved into a flat opposite them. The Bevans would receive hateful mail, but that wasn't all. Good God, what is that smell? If you can't tell, my dear George, you've led a blessed life. A little doorstep delivery to my home from, I'm assuming, a disenchanted medical. A parcel of human filth? How can anyone even contemplate such an action? Perhaps it's symbolic, Jameson. What? They're forming a movement? I have to get up early and hide it before Nye or the press get wind of it. I'd worry more about them being downwind of it. (laughs) This happened during the war. It happened when Nye spoke against Churchill and it's happening again now. Wickedness. Pure wickedness. Encouragement. It means we're doing the right thing. I'm not sure either of you have had this kind of fight in the public eye before and I wanted you to be aware. I wanted you to know what we're up against. And Nye doesn't know? I keep him concentrated on the positive. He's rattled enough after Morrison and things with the BMA aren't exactly going swimmingly. He needs to believe the public are behind him. When he gets angry, he... loses focus. In Jenny's book, she described how shortly after her father's death, Fireworks were dropped through the letterbox, which set fire to the hall carpet. Fortunately, Jenny's mother was in the sitting room and could contain the fire before it got out of control. When asked if she was still okay to be by herself, Ma replied, I was never a coward. As Jenny said, this kind of attack on defenceless old people, invalids and children enraged me more than anything else. Nye and I were fair game. We were in the ring. But could our families not be left in peace? Our enemies know too well where we are most vulnerable. At the height of the discussions with the BMA, Nye and Jenny had to be constantly on their guard so as to not fall into traps set by the press. As Jenny said, one attempt nearly came off when a woman who had all the hallmarks of the crudest type of prostitute threw her arms around his neck as he was walking along the embankment late at night. It was a put-up job. There was an instant flash of camera. Nye just managed to fight his way out of the trap. Whilst Attlee was supportive, by January 1948, he was becoming increasingly alarmed by the negative publicity with the launch of the NHS now only six months away. To make things worse, the doctors were about to have their referendum on the health service. We've kowtowed to the BMA for too long. A plebiscite, though. You pushed the BMA too far. There was a settlement to be made. We were elected with a landslide majority. And victors do not settle. We're supposed to be building the new Jerusalem, not knocking up a garden shed. If we fail at this, the Labour Party will go down in history as And a... if we succeed, we write the history. It doesn't matter what's said, but what is done. It's exactly what Dr Calloway said in her letter. Who? A frontline doctor. She said there are three vices, three barriers in her way. The BMA, the BMA and the BMA? Tradition, money and respectability. 
None of them evil in or of themselves, but put too high upon a pedestal, all involved lose sight of those below. Why do I think you're having a pop at the crown again? The NHS should be about medicine first. Tradition, money and respectability can take care of themselves. They always do. Clem, do this and the NHS will be your legacy. If you fight for it. My legacy, Nye? Or yours? Don't tell me you don't fancy this address for your own one day. I can all but see you measuring for curtains. Morrison wants to delay it. Delay what? My apparently rampant ambition? The opening. Push it back a year or two. We might not be here in a year or two. So much for your grand talk of victors. I'm still a realist. We need to get this done while we still have the chance. Delaying the opening is playing right into Tory hands. The BMA will just use it to prove the scheme is fatally flawed. If we lose the plebiscite, we'll have to delay it. The NHS is critical, not just to the nation's health, but to that of the Labour Party. You've put us all at risk. Yes, Prime Minister. But without risk, there is no reward. With the imminent vote amongst the doctors, Attlee invited Nye to present progress to the Cabinet at the beginning of 1948. Nye's update was that he thought Dr Hill was deliberately sabotaging the act. He didn't believe there was anything he could do or say to persuade the doctors not to vote against the act. He simply asked Cabinet to stick to its guns and open the full National Health Service on the 5th of July 1948. He was banking on the fact that after this date, set in law, GPs would change their minds. They risked the loss of their current income, their share of the £66 million compensation fund for owning practices, and their right to earn income from private hospital beds. He also genuinely hoped that the negotiating committee of the BMA did not actually represent all of the individual doctors across the country. This was quite a gamble. However, the Cabinet supported Nye's no-compromise approach, and with this backing from Cabinet, Nye went on to face the result of the doctor's referendum. Uh, the results are through plebiscite. Why can't we just call it a vote and have done? It's Latin. The common people decree. At this stage, I'd prefer Six Semper Tyrannis. Perhaps if I could just... Uh... Tell us the result, Nye. Let's hear it then. 70-30 in our favour. 85? 85%. Yes. 85%? For us? No. Against. 85% of doctors are against. 40,000 doctors don't want the NHS. We've lost. I'm sorry, Nye. There's nothing else we could have done. Atley will ask for you. Yes. After all this. Oh, I, I can't believe that after all this work we're done. What? Who's done? Us? Because of this? As you heard, the result was a complete disaster. 85% of doctors voted against. Worst of all, 17,000 GPs out of 20,000 who voted did the same. The BMA had stated that if over 13,000 GPs, some 65% voted against it, then that would trigger the BMA not to comply with the health service. Nye's initial response was to attack the way the vote had been conducted, it had not been a secret ballot. Nye felt he had to have evidence of Attlee's support so the BMA didn't try and go over his head. The display of support was set up for a day in Parliament. The plan was for Attlee to state that he and the Cabinet fully backed Nye and they would not tolerate a campaign of deliberately organised sabotage. This was to be Attlee's moment. 
I thought the Prime Minister was coming. They should be taking pictures of the two of you, not the two of us. He had to cancel. He said he's going to try and make the press conference later. Try? This is war. The cavalry doesn't ordinarily make other plans. The country needs to see that the government wants a national health service. Not just one Welshman covered in cement. Especially with Charles Hill and the BME attacking you. He promised you his support. And he'll give it, I'm sure. Will he? Churchill was right about him. A sheep in sheep's clothing. Indeed, Attlee did not show up. He simply wrote a short note to state that he had decided not to speak. Whilst this must have been infuriating, with hindsight it once again showed that Attlee was a superb manager of his team. Nye could not now go into the next BMA discussions aggressively, stating that Attlee had his back. Instead, he would need to compromise and get the doctors on board another way. The cabinet had backed him, and for now, that would have to do. With six months to go, things were not looking good as evidenced by this statement from the doctors. The meeting wishes to express its complete lack of confidence in and distrust of the Minister of Health. (laughs) 